Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 34. I'm Joshua Klein. And I'm Mike Uptograph. We are uh, watching things happen around here as autumn comes upon us. Uh, there's been some, some great stuff going on. Um, we are in week six of our first term of our eight-week apprenticeship program. It's this uh, online, um, really kind of intensive course for uh, pre-industrial handwork, hand-tool woodworking. And we have a good number of students who have been working through their weeks of different styles of joinery and different stock prep tasks and things like that. Turning in their assignments. Yeah. Um, Every Monday morning it's due. It has been so cool to see everyone's work. Um, They've been doing, uh, last week, uh, they all the students were doing half blind dovetails. Mm. This week we're uh, working on rabbits and dados, and um, it's been great. We have uh, forums set up for the program, so everyone's been interacting there and and sharing pictures, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. This term is coming near to the end. Yeah, and it's crazy too because we set up the forums, not sure. Um, how much activity there would be. Yeah. And we cannot keep we up with keep it. Up. These people are just loving it. They're just yeah. back and forth sharing ideas, sharing pictures of stuff they're doing. And it's just like, it's mind blowing. It's yeah. so cool. Yeah. So, it's been really a, a great gift for us, uh, yeah. this program, where we couldn't be more pleased with how uh, how things are going right now. And we just have a couple weeks left of this term. And then we have to, you know, tearfully bid everyone a. <laughs> Uh, a fond goodbye, and then get ready for the next term. Yep. Uh, so that the next term for this program, the fall term, actually opens up on October the 29th. So if uh, if you're listening and this sounds like something that might be of interest to you, you can check out um, for more information at our website, mortisandtenonmag.com, um, and uh, on the header bar, you'll see um, apprenticeship, and just click there to learn more. Yep. The last time, uh, the first term... When we opened registration, it filled up in two days. Yeah. So um, I don't know what's going to happen next time, but just a heads up that if you're thinking about it uh, and you really want to uh, get to it this this term, uh, we would say jump on it. Yeah. Uh, make sure you're you're there when it opens on October 29th. So we got that going on. We also just got uh, issue 11 came and the first three issues came. We got all this stuff here. Yeah, the um, first three issues. We're excited to see exactly that. Exactly. This. The first three issues, this hardbound, massive, dense uh, republication of issues one, two, and three, uh, with new essays, uh, new kind of backstory stuff, and um, sort of you know what the vision was for MNT and how uh, it was received and how we are interacting with the woodworking uh, world out there. So, um, the first three issues, it's just it's gorgeous. The, um, it is beautiful. The dust jacket it's a very is pretty book. really um, three dimensional and, and beautiful. And so the, it's also on uh, matte coated paper, which is a different presentation of uh, issues one, two, and three. Anyways, we're just blown away. Um, and uh, people have been uh, ordering that up. We're shipping it right out. So if you need, if you don't have a copy of issue one and you've been waiting and it's been sold out for several years, uh, now's the time you can get it. Right. Uh, it's it's back in stock as a hardbound book. It's called The First Three Issues. It's on our website. So, yeah. So, uh, uh, today, we wanted to talk a little bit about um, uh, something about Issue 11. Uh, you know, these issues, they come together, and we find these common threads or themes through them. 
which were not planned, but there they are. And uh, issue 11 had some interesting angles on chair making. Yeah. So we're going to call Seems this like everybody episode. wants to write about chair making. Yeah. This yeah. time. We're like, <laughs> okay. So we're going to call this episode of the podcast Chairs, Controversies, and Issue 11. Because who would think a simple chair would be a controversial thing? I don't know. I mean, you're just, we're both sitting on, on chairs and there's nothing very controversial. Yeah, I mean, about well, everybody that. knows what the right chair is. <laughs> right. So it's not controversial at all right. because no one has a wrong idea. Right? Yeah, there are definitely <laughs> right and wrong chairs for sure. <laughs> um, so, drawing from some of the articles in issue 11 about chair making and different perspectives on, uh, on chair making, the chair making process. First, we'll talk about Elia Bazzari. Mm. And if if anyone's seen him maybe on an episode of the Woodwright Shop, he's like the fastest turner I've ever seen, maybe. Yeah, it's crazy. He can turn a Windsor, Windsor chair spindle or a, a turned leg just like nothing. And he makes these beautiful, like these um, rounds and, and coves and V grooves. And he does just... He's a yeah. magician. Talk about tools as an extension of your arm. Yeah. I mean, it's just that that edge is just a part of him. He's <clears throat> quick, quick, quick. Every little hand motion is perfect, dead on, so fast. It's yeah. mesmerizing. Yeah. One of my favorite episodes of the Woodwright Shop is the one where uh, Roy is pumping the treadle lathe while Elliot <laughs> <Yeah>. turns. And <laughs> Roy's trying to talk as he's pumping, and he's pumping fast, and Elliot's just chatting away, and Roy's getting all out of breath. And he's like, <laughs> okay, okay, so let's... Let's just kind of t- stop now, and that's about as much as I can do. And uh, it's just awesome. But uh, Elliot's very skilled. And uh, he wrote an article for Issue 11 uh, called For Speed, Fancy Windsor Chair Production in Early America. And uh, he starts talking about uh, this idea of um, kind of beginning with Windsor chairs, but then as the uh, fancy chair phenomenon came about, he starts talking more and more about how um, these chair makers focus on interchangeable parts and they they uh, focus more on specialization and they would have individuals making parts that were, you know, nearly identical. They were made mm-hmm. to a template so you could swap them between different chairs. And uh, he asks this question, like, um, did the industrial revolution begin in a chair shop? Uh, which is... An, an interesting thing to consider, and we were talking about that a little bit today, just yeah. um, how the idea of interchangeable parts came about. Right, yeah. So I think the Industrial Revolution comment is interesting because, you know, what particularly is Elia trying to pick up on? And I think right. it's the interchangeability aspect of it. And when you read about the um, development of the Industrial Revolution um, and the technological advances there, um, a lot of people will point to interchangeability, and they will cite that... Um, that the beginning of that is actually in uh, gunsmithing, right? That you had a gunsmith, uh, someone who was making one gun at a time and uh, uh, making all of these pieces to fit yeah, just it's exactly. Right? It's a one-off, right? Yeah. And then they realized, okay, so if we're going to get guns uh, in a, produced at a faster rate, we have to make all these pieces interchangeable so that every... I don't know anything about guns, but you know yeah. every little piece fits in any yeah. other one. Lock, you can, stock, and barrel. Yeah, that's it. That's all it is. <laughs> um, so it's all these pieces can fit together, and that revolutionized uh, gun production, and that then extended into other areas of um, of production. And so Windsor chair making is kind of like that. And Windsor chair makers will talk about how uh, Windsor chairs were one of the first mass produced pieces of furniture. 
um, that it's harder to, in in a pre-industrial setting to envision mass-producing uh, casework doesn't really make sense when you're hand-planing right. boards. But if you think about interchangeability, you can then have specialists focused on uh, turning. Yeah, and like the bodgers, right? And, yeah, exactly. Uh, specialists focused on assembly, uh, painters, gilders, the fancy chairs. The, the term fancy, it's a 19th century phenomenon. And fancy is like, um, you know, you're, you're painting according to fancy. It's this whimsical, it's your whimsy, your, your fantasy vision, right? right? And so there were uh, bold colors and decorative uh, leaves and all these this wild painting. And so it's actually just a, a visual and aesthetic, this fancy chair. But what that did then is it enabled uh, the, the best uh, canvas, uh, furniture canvas for this fancy, fancy painting is very um, flat, uh, simple uh, turnings. So a lot of the, uh, the turnings were bamboo turnings, yeah. not the elaborate Philadelphia bulbous, you know, right. curvy it's to, Windsor it's hard chair to legs. paint a little scene on that. You know? <laughs> yeah. So uh, what, what Ellie is looking at is, okay, this 19th century fancy chair thing, uh, what they were focused on is paint is economical. It's an economical form of, um, of ornamentation. And you could really crank out stuff a lot faster. And so they were talking about this competition they had and they had to survive. And I think it's so interesting because that can be um, seen in a really negative light by a lot of people mm. that it was, you know, f- um, you know, sort of a John Ruskin sort of like these people are becoming cogs in the wheel. Right. But what I found so interesting about Elia's take on it as, as a craftsman, he said, okay, I can kind of roll with that. If I had these time constraints, right. what would I have to do to take a close look at my workflow mm-hmm. and my techniques to be able to survive, yeah. you know, to survive as an artisan in this world. And um, so that's what he's kind of doing in this article is instead of saying, isn't it so sad that they had to work uh, so intensely? He said, wow, I have a lot of admiration for that Yeah, skill. they really got dialed in with, yeah. with their tools and with the lathe. Like they they um, mastered the uh, the art of you know cutting a quick round tenon on the end of an arrow spin arrow shaped spindle or um, an urn spindle and they they just got so fast and you know Joshua you and I are are interested in that kind of thing too just you know efficiency of workflow it's yep. just rather than kind of dilly dallying in the shop when we're going from point A to point B we we want to know how to how to do something efficiently, like quickly. And so by looking at these early makers, Elia was trying to do that. Yeah, and for me, it's because it's so fun. Yeah, super fun. I mean, I know some people like the the Zen slow approach um, because they like to really soak up every ounce of the the moment. And I can appreciate that. I really like woodworking, but I like working, you know... uh, efficiently is maybe not the right word, but in a, in a quick manner. So it's sort of like if you went for a hike mm-hmm. and you took one baby step, right? every, you know, baby step, baby step, baby step. Yep. I mean, that's nice. You're not, you're going to see a lot of, you're going to experience a lot of the trail, but it's also kind of nice to take a brisk walk and get right yeah. up the top of that mountain and move through and see lots of material. And so for me, that's the kind of the way I think about woodworking. Just because I'm trying to go fast um, working by hand uh, doesn't mean that I'm, you know, uh, I'm just trying to get it over with. So right. 
I think that's what Ellie is trying to pick up on too. <clears throat> yeah, like everybody, to work that way. everybody has an efficient speed. Like if I'm out hiking and say my kids were, you know, when they were like three and four years old, I have an efficient hiking speed that is way beyond what they can do. Mm-hmm. Their efficient hiking speeds feels like crawling along to me, right? Yep. But if I'm out hiking, I'm going to just fall into my rhythm. And that doesn't mean I'm not going to stop and sit down occasionally to take it in. But when I'm moving, I'm moving at a certain speed. And that's just yeah. what I've found that I enjoy. Well, maybe that's maybe that's the right way to think about it, a rhythm. Yeah. You know, uh, because so in issue 11, I wrote about um, the, this batch production. And I talked so much about getting in the groove, mm-hmm. finding the rhythm of the work. And I think that's also what it was, you know, batch production. It's it's very much like, you know, we were building these boxes uh, for the box sets for M&T. And I wrote about the, the batch production mentality we had to learn. And it's very much like what Elia was arguing, actually. Instead of chairs, it's boxes. Right. But it's the same kind of mentality. It's batch production. It's how can we um, do things in, in batches but what I was focusing on seems to be similar to what Elliot was drawn into is not so that you can make more stuff and sell it quicker, but because you can then get into the rhythm. Like mm. it's, it's actually then enjoyable and you feel like everything you're doing is flowing well, it's clicking, I'm getting it down and then you can move on to the next thing. And it's, it's finding that sweet spot of um, spending enough time that you're really working well, you're doing good work, but then it's not dragging on so long that you're getting bored. So um, yeah, I think Elia's take on it was refreshing to me. Um, it wasn't, um, it, it was seeing the, the benefits for the artisan of working in that, right. in that way. Yeah. And I, I just like how Elia writes, you know, he has, um, some, <laughs> some pretty funny, I, I don't know. They're, they're almost like Underhill-esque. Yeah. He's been hanging out with Roy tongue Underhill too much. Kind of comments throughout <laughs> this article. So it's just fun it's to awesome. read. Awesome. Um, one of the places he goes with his article is uh, he talks about all these, he has this whole collection of uh, of old, either cut apart or knocked apart uh, Windsor chair joinery. Mm-hmm. And he talks about, you know, how these joints were, what the, uh, what the insides of these joints look like. And um, basically just how, you know, what, what the thought process was for some of these joints, you know, they'll have grooves around uh, the the tenon. Like, why would you put a groove around a tenon that's just going to be driven into around mortise? Like, what what good is that? Yeah, what is the groove there for? Yeah, and so he uh, he explores that a little bit in this article. Uh, the value of these grooves, especially for um, mortises that are bored with a spoon bit. Mm-hmm. And he has he has these I think some some great ideas as to why that was the case because um, you know a lot of these old chairs are quite hard to knock apart mm-hmm. you know still and uh, so he talks about you know the wood fibers inside the joint and how the glue can cause them to swell and they engage in those grooves and things like that yep. but all this especially with the spoon bit he was talking about yeah, cuz the spoon bit the spoon chowders bit, up yeah it does not make a nice the... clean hole if you used a forstner bit to cut that mortise it would not work and that's mm-hmm. kind of his point yeah, if you use a, a spoon bit it's going to leave it all ragged yep. and then you you have a a groove or multiple grooves around the tenon and you drive the tenon in with hide glue and then all those ratty fibers from the spoon bit swell and lock yeah. into those grooves. Um, that's his theory. I, I like, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense to me 
um, how that would work. And it's just so classic. It's so classic to look at some of this old stuff and say, wow, I want to try what I see here. And then you get a modern tool, like a Forstner bit, and you yeah. try it. And you're like, and you go, I don't know. Mm, that's that weird. It doesn't work. work. Yeah. So you kind of have to say, well, I'm going to deal with them uh, with their tools on their terms and yeah. try doing exactly what they did. And then you'll find these insights like Elia came up with saying, oh, you actually do need ratty mortises mm -hmm. to make this thing work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You don't necessarily want a nice, clean joint. Um, it actually gives the glue something to do in there, it, you know? Yeah, exactly. If it's if it's a little torn up. Um, so also in this issue, we have um, Dr. Mike Epworth writing about um, it, his, his shorthand he uses is the butterfly effect, but he's kind of comparing the the process of making a chair using a lathe, as Elliot um, talks about, with making a chair using a draw knife. And to do that, he uses two different traditions. He, he lives in Australia, and he's done a lot of research on this um, Tasmanian um, chair-making tradition uh, based around this maker who may or may not have been a real person <laughs> called Jimmy Possum, uh, who lived you know well over a century ago. Um, the stories about him are that he lived in a hollow tree, and they do have trees big enough to do that down there. And um, he made these chairs uh, just with very simple tools. And the chair form is still around. In fact, they've become collector's items. And there's this kind of new tradition of Jimmy Possum chair makers. Uh, these people in Australia and Tasmania have started making this pattern again. Um, and Mike is one of the kind of driving forces behind this it's like a, a community get together where people get together and they all make chairs and it sounds like a great time. Mm. But he talks about how the process of making a chair with a draw knife um, kind of leads you in one direction and how the process of making a chair with a lathe can lead you in another direction. Mm -hmm. um, because a lathe, as we know, can be mechanized and mass mechanized and uh, eventually operated by a robot. Mm -hmm. And that is pretty hard to do with a draw knife. And so the contrast he draws is between Jimmy Possum and uh, the, the chair making of George Peddle. Mm -hmm. And George Peddle um, came over, he was a bodger. He was trained as a, a bodger in England. Um, and he came over uh, to Australia and uh, started working with his lathe and moved into mechanization. Right. Um, he actually, I think he got some, we've learned that he got some big commissions. Yeah, big commission from like the railroad or something yeah, to so make he, X he, number of chairs. He needs to make a lot of chairs. He had chairs. to make a lot of chairs. So he was mechanizing. He had this this workflow, this, um, this lathe-centric uh, design of a chair. And mm. so he needed to mechanize this thing to make a ton of chairs for the, for his orders. And so this, this chair became something that you could easily, um, outsource from a professional turner to more mechanized turning. And so he just talks about, you know, that your tools have implications. The, the, the tools that you choose to use can lead you down a certain path. Right. Now, he doesn't say this, um, as we worked through this and we were uh, reading through this article and going back and forth with Mike about it, we were talking about, you know, basically he's not saying it's impossible to use a lathe in a mm. way that's free. He actually right. holds up the bodgers as an example of, uh, these turners out in the woods who were uh, really self-guided. They yeah. were able to do it's their own self -reliant. work. kind of self-reliant. Yeah, self-reliant. Um, and of course, he even talks about, theoretically, you could make draw knife-inspired chairs 
um, in some way that's mechanized. So, you know, it really is something that uh, it isn't an absolute, but he's what he's just highlighting is there's a logic behind the workflow. There's mm-hmm. a logic behind a, a lathe mentality, probably he would say. And there's a, another logic behind this sort of on your porch with a draw knife. Right. Made, uh, you know, each piece is, is custom fit to that particular mortise. So it's it's not interchangeable at all, actually. Right. So it's an it's it's sort of a an interesting contrast as we were editing both of these articles, seeing uh, Mike Up Epworth and his kind of holding up the draw knife as um, maybe a more uh, convivial uh, human sort of way of working instead of a lathe. Uh, then we have Elia saying, "This is what's so great about really." W- focusing closely on your workflow and trying right. to make it as efficient as possible yeah. with the lathe. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was just a really fascinating issue to be able to see these two side by side and hear their arguments for two different ways of approaching something as simple as chair making. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so, I mean, thinking about, uh, he, he again, he uses uh, the example of George Peddle and the fact that as he as his chair making business grew and become became more mechanized, uh, sort of the um, design of his chair changed uh, to, to become simpler to build utilizing machines. And obviously we talk about that a lot, you know, how so much of design now is built around um, uh, what a machine can do efficiently and quickly mm-hmm. rather than, you know, kind of a human-centric design process or a human-centric product. Yep. It's more like we always say the um, uh, like the carpenter's fathom is eight feet, right? And how many sheds are there? Um, Brendan Gaffney said that in an article. How many yep. sheds are there that are exactly eight feet tall? Because that's what the, the stock that's is. That's what right? the material is, yeah. Um, and that's what mass production has given us, that, that normalization of dimension. And so uh, he holds that up as it's kind of a cautionary tale mm-hmm. of what um, these these choices can make. And he, he uses the butterfly effect as his shorthand. That's like a, um, it's a mathematical kind of mind game where you say uh, a butterfly flaps its wings on one side of the, the world. And uh, basically the sensitivity to initial conditions of a system is so fragile that that little air current that the butterfly sets up can cause a hurricane on the other side of the planet because systems are, are so very sensitive to the initial setup. And uh, so he says the lathe, the draw knife, uh, just you know, be careful <laughs> with your choices <laughs> and, um, and just watch where you're headed because pretty soon you might be running a robot uh, chair factory. So, um, be yeah, careful with that. That's not my, that's not my interest. It's probably not going to happen around here. But. Yeah. I don't know. So it was interesting because a lot of this seems to be centered around this idea of looking at, um, the work that we're doing in a, in a very scientific way, trying to uh, break down and analyze. And I think that's kind of what Mike is pointing at saying, Hey, we got to be careful um, although he's focusing on these two different tools, the draw knife and the lathe, he's also saying there's a way of thinking that can lead you down a path. And mm-hmm. it makes me think of uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor in his book, The Principles of Scientific Management. 
Um, this is a book that was uh, written in the early 20th century, I believe, um, and uh, he was focused on uh, trying to say, okay, so we have all these people working in factories, but uh, we need to be able to democratize production more, and this is really not an efficient way to do it, the way that we're doing it now. Um, we need to be able to get people working in a, in a much more efficient way. So he talks about tr- uh, having management, having a scientific analysis of um, motions and workflow, and then you teach the workers, this is the way that you do it. Move your hand like this, not like that, right? So uh, reading from, uh, from Taylor here, he says, uh, the enormous saving of time and therefore increase in the output, which it is possible to affect through eliminating unnecessary motions and substituting fast for slow and inefficient motions for the men working in any of our trades, can be fully realized only after one has personally seen the improvement which results from a thorough motion and time study made by a competent Mm. man. Now, among the various methods and implements used in each element of each trade, there is always one method and one implement which is quicker and better than any of the rest. Ooh. That should be revealing as we listen here. Yeah, right. And this is, <clears throat> this is, and this one best method and best implement can only be discovered or developed through a scientific study and analysis. This involves the gradual substitution of science for rule of thumb through the mechanic arts. And so he says, this paper will show that the underlying philosophy of all of the old systems of management, mm. of the old ways of working, old meaning bad, <laughs> in common use, makes it imperative that each workman shall be left with the final responsibility for doing his job practically as he thinks best. Mm. In most cases, this makes it impossible for the men working under these systems to do their work in accordance with the rules and laws of a science or art, even where one exists. Hmm. So here's where he goes with it. The workman who is best suited to actually doing the work is incapable of fully understanding this science without the guidance and help of those who are working with him or over him, Hmm. either through lack of education or through insufficient mental capacity. <laughs> so, so he called this, this whole approach to production scientific management. Right. It's looking at the way things were made and saying, listen, uh, the guys on the floor, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, they're that, a bunch of morons. And so we need to figure out how to make them work faster, more efficiently. Yeah. And to be fair to him, he's not saying so we can ex- exploit them right. and make them feel terrible. He's not saying He's that. saying overall, we want... the our ultimate goal is higher production. So mm-hmm. how can we make everyone work in, in a more efficient way? And you can already see where the, that's yeah. not really embraced much anymore. Everyone's saying, I mean, there are places like Amazon who think that's a great idea. Right. Um, but there are a lot of places that say, hey, you know what? Actually, we should allow a little bit of you know uh, freedom for people to decide yeah. how they're going to do their work because we're people. You know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's interesting because I think that's really the primary issue that Mike is focused on. And I think um, even Elia, what I like about it is Elia, um, he's focused on almost his own 
internally driven scientific management. Right. So what that means is he's concerned about improving his own work, not about controlling how other people's work could be more efficient. You know, he's not saying, I'm going to start a factory, figure out the best way, and then impose it on other people. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what's so cool is I think they're both kind of arguing for the same uh, core idea that that the worker should be responsible to uh, to assess his or her work and and modify according to what makes sense to to them. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean that's that's some pretty deep stuff uh, to be looking at just in, in chair production. Um, but it got our minds reeling and thinking about uh, production methods. Yeah, it's interesting. So um, Taylor was writing when early in the twentieth century. Was that yep. before World War One? I? I believe it was. Yeah. It's funny how much there was this sense of uh, kind of a scientific I- idealism. 1911, it was published. Yeah. So this this uh, this sense that, oh, if we just do things scientifically, everything is yep. going to be better. Yep. That was, uh, all this was blown out of the water by World War I. Yep. Uh, so <laughs> it's kind of funny how that happened. There's all this kind of idealistic um, writing around the turn of the century yep. that uh, then became almost looked quaint after after the two yeah, well, world wars. It was sort of the beginning of science with a capital S. Right. Science is an institution. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um so yeah, those were to to us we we were just struck by those those two um perspectives on on the simple uh simple at first glance art of chair making. Right? Yep. And then uh I was able to write an article, which was a lot of fun to do, about the um, the Foxfire project. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, uh, began as a uh, a way to get um, unruly high schoolers interested in English class, right back in the '60s <laughs> down in in northern Georgia, and became this phenomenon. You know, over 10 million books sold, and um, it was like a driving force to some of the back to the land movement and. A lot of people have looked to the Foxfire books as like their first, uh, you know, like epiphany type moment when it came to handcraft. And uh, wow, this was possible. This is possible. We can do this. We have done this. Mm-hmm. Um, so these students would go around and interview these these people who are living, you know, mostly way back in the hills, back at the end of a long dirt road, uh, who. Um, yeah, a lot of them were elderly or you know lived alone, and they had lived a hard life, but their life was made up of uh, f- fashioning, crafting, making everything they needed, growing their own food, and this kind of lifestyle was was really fading. But um, one of the uh, one of the subjects that these students interviewed multiple times and would go back to visit is uh, a, a man named Lon Reed, and he was. He was a chair maker. He made ladder back chairs. He had several different styles of chair that he made. And he was also a beekeeper. So he was actually most famous for his beekeeping. But then um, his, his beehives were like uh, a landmark to find his property. You'd, you'd see these ancient stumps, hollow stumps with these you know clouds of bees around them. And you're like, oh, that's Lawn's Road. So then they go up the road to find this guy. And um, he made these ladder back chairs based on you know, patterns and templates handed down from his father, who they were handed down from his father, and who knows how far back that went. But um, 
Lon uh, had worked out these um, these ways of making these chairs that were uh, some of the, the the tasks he did were pretty unique. Like he would chop his mortises in his um, his posts with a hammer and a knife. This is for the slats. Yeah, yeah. for the back slats. He yeah. he chop his little long thin rectangular mortises with a hammer and a knife. He just put the knife on the line and whack it, and then pop that out right wow um and so he he developed his own way of doing it kind of based on i'm sure a thoroughly analytical scientific method Mm -hmm. of finding the most efficient way of doing it and that's why he shifted to that method that's right because you read taylor yeah he he was looking at taylor um like you do and so but no that's just how he did it and Mm -hmm. and uh it maybe he lost his mortise chisel (laughs) it could be that too (laughs) And he had he had a few chairs to make. He He's like, oh, what do I got? Yeah, what do I got around? Well, I got my my hunting knife. Yeah, so I'm sometimes try that's it. how workflow develops. Uh totally, totally. It's like that that old story of the the uh, woman who always cut both ends off the ham. Uh-huh. You know, the Easter ham before cooking it. Yep. And she's she was asked, why do you do that? Uh, my mother did it, and so she asked her mother. Um, my mother did it. So this woman was still alive. They went and they asked her, why did you cut both ends off the ham before you bake it? And she said, because it wouldn't fit in the oven. So <laughs> this is how some traditions start, you know, and yeah. we don't know why we do those things, but it's just incidental, the reason that we choose to do so. Um, so yeah, you lose your mortise chisel, you got to use your knife. Yep. Uh, but there are all kinds of things like that out there and, uh, you know, workflow decisions that we just have stumbled upon a a better way of doing it and that works for us well it reminds me also of the um the article uh written by uh, hunter rhodes uh about richard pointer the yeah. chair maker mm-hmm. and uh his work uh working um under his enslaver who taught him how to make chairs and he he took this uh this original design that he learned and kind of made it his own. And mm-hmm. so he tweaked it with these mule ears and stuff. And so when he um, he uh, was able to secure his own freedom and he put out an ad in the paper advertising the original uh, Dick Pointer chairs, I think is what right. it said, the original Dick Pointer chairs. And he was saying he's, he's now um, on his own book, right? meaning, you know, he's free. He's able, he's, he works for himself, not for anyone else. And so he was advertising his chairs. And when he then uh, bought land and his son was working with him making chairs. And so they had their own way of, of approaching um, the, even this this one chair design that was sort of passed down to him, he then took it and tweaked it. Mm. And, you know, we don't, a lot of the, the um, construction methods are pretty straightforward. Right. They're, they're ladder back mm-hmm. uh, type chairs. Um, but even within that, it's just great to see uh, tradition is not static. And that's what we learned a lot from uh, Yoga Sunquist when we uh, interviewed him, that this idea that tradition is static right. is actually exactly one, uh, 180 degrees wrong. Yeah. Right? Uh, tradition is actually, by definition, evolutionary. Right. Because you're passing something down. And so as you do that, there's this um, really uh, thick through line this tradition that you can kind of identify yeah but the whole point the reason you can see it's not just copies but it's actually tradition is that it does evolve over time slowly yeah and that's sort of the contrast if you think about um tradition as uh 
sort of evolutionary or reformation. It's this always changing, improving, tweaking. Yeah. Um, maybe sort of a, um, well, you see this idea of this evolution and tradition. And then you contrast that with revolution. Mm. And revolution takes what's existing and burns it all down to right. start over. Right. Or throws it all in the trash can. Say, we're going to start from scratch and build a totally new thing. And so the Industrial Revolution, um, it is, I think, accurately described as a revolution. Mm-hmm. Is that it was? It, there was this hard break. It totally shifted this uh, this way of making. It shifted from a smaller market, one-offs, uh, maybe part of a barter system, and and the Industrial Revolution, and tied up with the way that. Uh, capital could be leveraged to create bigger factories and workers. And uh, there's this whole systematic shift in the way that production happened um, that really opened up a whole new set of vistas for society and life. And so um, if you if you contrast, if you think of tradition as uh, reformation or slow, gradual progression right. versus revolution, I think then you can start to see that why tradition and technology can kind of be thought of as um, two different tracks, two different ways of approaching change and growth and development. Yeah, um, I found a great quote that I like from uh, Tim Ingold. He's an anthropologist, and uh, he said this. He's he's talking about tradition and kind of uh, talking about folk knowledge, which is is similar to to tradition. Um, But he says, it seems to me that knowledge is something that is dynamic, that is continually growing in the lives of people, that each generation, in a sense, has to discover for itself, though under the guidance of predecessors. And that is really what what I found in looking at the the Foxfire project, Mm. you know, this this sense that uh, these people had been living these, um, you know, relatively independent lifestyles especially when you look at today what what we would look at them and say wow they were completely self-reliant and of course uh, these people um, the people featured in the project would say no I was I needed my neighbors I needed my church family I needed you know I was depend we were dependent on one another mm-hmm. like we were closer then than we are today we were more dependent then um, so it's a, a kind of a different view of dependence but that knowledge was was constantly changing it was constantly evolving and um i like the thing that that yoga was talking about is he's like uh when he was talking about the the walls of tradition right he has these four walls of tradition but it's completely free to work within them Mm -hmm. which is an interesting thing because we think of walls as restrictive we think of walls as oh you're going to use these tools and you're going to use this historic form and you're going to like aren't you limiting yourself? Yeah. And he said, well, no, actually, the, the walls are what gives structure to what I want to build. Like, I can mm-hmm. build anything I want. Yep. Without those walls, um, you you don't have anything to start with. You have no yep. starting line. And so... Um, well, and I think, okay, so that's the Swedish tradition. That's yeah. the Swedish folk tradition. And I think some people might say, yeah, but, you know, when you look at all those the um, pre-industrial American furniture, it's all the same. It's all brown flat, maybe Mm. some ball and claw feet, but I mean, it's pretty much all the same. And that was just so rigid and so static. And I think the reason that people have that misunderstanding is because what they're doing is they're looking at the very few exceptional survivals throughout history. What they're doing is 
um, the institutions, the, the museums that have collected these masterpieces are highlighting them and showing them. And as connoisseurship develops and we have uh, preferences and tastes, like, you know, there's nothing like a Philadelphia high boy carved right. to the most, right. you know, pristine degree. And we all marvel at that. And so we're all drawn to certain forms and we get so fascinated by it. And when we do that, our vision is occluded. Everything else that's outside of that little tiny yeah. narrow slice is no longer interesting to us. So we think then, oh, all that furniture in American history is all the same, same right. boring stuff. No, no, no. If you take a step back, if you look at the other stuff, the other traditions, the other regional variations, then you'll see it's the same thing. Yeah. Um, it's a different form of ornamentation, less um, uh, chip carving type stuff. and mm -hmm. But the same kind of colors, the fancy painting, all that stuff was um, expressive of uh, not only regional idiosyncrasies, but the peculiar mindset and insights yeah. of the maker yeah. himself. You like, know? And like, that's what's... Yeah. I mean, like the thing that jumps to mind as you're saying this is uh, the tradition of main grain painted furniture, mm -hmm. right? The first time I saw a piece that you, you said, oh, that's from Maine, I was like... Why is that so ugly? <laughs> but in fact, of course, that's my my modern biases talking. Main grain painted furniture was this like gaudy faux redwood and bright yellow and like bright green, right? Yeah. These were the colors. So like red, 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 black, yellow, and really very bright green. Yeah, bright like, green. Like lime green. Banding. Banding yeah. on, on turned furniture and things like that. So if you see something out there that has those combination of colors, you can be pretty well assured it was made in Maine. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, those are the colors that, that makers gravitated to, you know, a few hundred years ago here. Yeah. Don't know why. Um, it's a bold look. It's extremely unique. And <laughs> so we have that going for us up here, that this is a, a very local regional thing. Um, so yeah, everywhere you look, if you look close enough, if you don't get caught you know, painting with a broad brush, you will find these really interesting innovations mm -hmm. and really interesting forms that um, you know, people were experimenting. They were, they were messing around a little bit in the shop. Yeah. They're trying something new. Well, I think that's the thing, just to draw it into, you know, um, contemporary uh, applications to it. I think that's one of the dangers of, you know, looking for design inspiration through the internet, whether mm, it's, you know, a right. Google image search or yeah. Pinterest or Instagram or something. You're saying, I want to make something that looks really cool. Yeah. And you start searching through the people who, you know, make things that are cool and everyone's doing that. And all of a sudden, it's just like all of the... Um, all of the varieties of apples and yeah. broccoli yeah. and beets and all, all the fruits and vegetables that we used to have and those varieties are extinct. Yeah. They're gone. Yeah. Because we only like this kind of apple. Right. And maybe two others. Yeah. And because of that neglect of all the other varieties of apples that were great for pies or sauces or other unique particular uses, uh, because we're not interested in those, we've let them pass away. Mm -hmm. And so now we only think an apple tastes like this. And if it doesn't taste like this, it's not an apple or it's a bad apple, mm -hmm. right? And I think people can do that same thing with Pinterest or Instagram or whatever social media, uh, TikTok. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but yeah. uh, you know, stuff like that where you can say, I just want to know what is the, the coolest, most up-to-date thing. What's relevant. Yeah, what's relevant and what 
what I think people misunderstand is they say uh, that, oh, this is so unique. This is exactly what I'm interested in. And they realize well, that's because everyone's interested in it. And right. so all of our tools are the same tools. Right. All of our furniture we make looks exactly like everybody else's because we're getting the same plans. Mm. And that's that's fine. I mean, if you, if you don't make furniture already and you want to get into it, that's great to have that um, you know, that easy access point to be able to enter in and start making stuff. But I think the historic record would show then, would encourage you to then branch out. Yeah. Now make it weird. Yeah. Make it your own Innovate stuff. a little bit. Right. Innovate. And then you can really put your signature on it, your your thumbprint on it and your fingerprints, because uh, that's what craftsmanship is all about, is being able to uh, engage with material. And it's not just like art for art's sake, like just expression, but I think uh, true craftsmanship is really looking at um, this unique piece as something from you, not just mindless copies of something. Yeah. Um, a, a few issues ago, Amy Umble wrote about that very topic. She was she was talking about you know trying to find basically a I'll put it like a craft identity. Like where do I identify my craft roots? And she was really drawn to like the Sami people of northern mm-hmm. Scandinavia. And their their designs, their patterns, and things like that. And she said, "But I I couldn't take that because I'm not I'm not connected with that place. I I didn't grow up there. Like I don't know what the winter's like there. I don't know what it's like to have 24 hour darkness and and all of that. Um, all of these factors from that landscape are what inspired those craft forms and those patterns. And so she she was like, I couldn't." couldn't take that and make that my own. And so what she ended up coming back to was the 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 quilting patterns that her 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 grandmothers, you know, had made mm-hmm. when she she was growing up and you know that it's kind of like that German Pennsylvania Maryland uh, tradition of of quilting and um she said this this is a place I could I could be comfortable, right? This is something that I was that connected with me um, my childhood and so she was able to to find that, and so she she carves these beautiful spoons with these quilt patterns in the handles, mm. and uh, it's it's just really neat that she went this this full circle journey to come back home to the the quilts her grandmother used to make, and those are the patterns that she works into her designs yeah, now. That is so cool. Yeah, that's awesome. But yeah, so we've as we've tackled chair making, we've felt yeah. like we want to be able to uh, taste a little bit of all these kinds of approaches. Um, and so, you know, like an issue two, I made a banister back chair um, and was focused on uh, this, this sort of lathe-centered uh, way of making chairs. Everything was focused on turning. Um, and I really liked it actually quite a lot. Um, in the article, I talked about perfection and risk and pulled on David Pye to sort of contrast that a, a turned, one of the things that about turned elements is that they're this interesting mix of um control that the the piece is perfectly round but then also you're bringing the tool to the machine you're bringing the the chisel to the work and you're shaping all of the beads and coves etc and so it's this mix of perfect regularity is perfectly round but then the the profile is shaped completely by guiding your hand in a chisel yes it's almost like one dimension is regulated exactly but it introduces new possibilities of irregularity in the other dimensions exactly so it it, the chair in one sense feels like this nice proper regular object but then you get up close and you realize oh yeah each of those posts are a little bit different and that's what handmade furniture looks like right 
So um, that was a, a great exercise in um, that kind of mindset. And, and that whole article was focused on trying to draw that out and think about um, this this interplay between perfection and risk, hand-guided cutting versus the mechanized turning by just, I pushed the treadle, mm-hmm. the, the pedal down, and it turned that piece perfectly round. Right. I mean, I pushed the chisel against it and it made it round, yeah. Yeah. very controlled. Yeah, I mean, both of us, our kids have done some turning and they've made round things, mm-hmm. you know, pretty pretty reliably round things. Yep. But, um, you know, and that's just the nature of that machine to to make things round. But right. then the skill involved in, in the other work is something that can take years to develop. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, and then uh, you and I both made a chair um, in preparation for our summer workshop here a few few years ago, we had a student who wanted to uh, get to learn about uh, green greenwood chair making. And so we said, we should each make a chair in, anticipation. in, in preparation and for this. Also and also wanted to learn uh, rush seat weaving yeah. at the same time. So it was like in anticipation, getting all geared up with shaving horses uh, for this class, working through some chair making uh, experiments we wanted to do and rush seating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Why not do it all yeah, at once? Do it all. Yeah. Uh, and that was that was a lot of fun. We both both our chairs ended up they were very different, right? Mm-hmm. And because um, we I wanted to do like round um, mortise and tenon, um, and you got a piece of you, you kind of went it you wanted to do something with uh, it seemed to me maybe the most heinous piece of firewood you could get. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> you well, grabbed this piece of maple. Well, I grabbed that this piece was of maple. So gnarly. Yeah, well, I mean, I it looked like it wasn't dead straight, but it was kind of hard to tell because the way that the bark was off it at the time, and I couldn't really read what was going on. Um, and it was interesting because it was a good diameter to mm. start with, and I started this split, and whoa, it really was quite corkscrewed. Yeah, and I thought, oh, yeah, I remember you were oh. considering giving up on it. And yeah, then I was like, said, I can't make a chair out of this. This is like breaking the first rule yeah. of chair making. Materials. Materials are the yeah. most important. And it was all twisted. And I thought, no, you know what? Actually, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try to push through with this material because mm. I'm pretty sure I, you know, it will not be ideal. But I want to yeah. know why. I want to learn from that. Yeah. Um, you know, like I do. I, I, for some reason, I'm just curious to figure out, like, what were people working with? If, you, if they had less than ideal materials, what would happen? Right. And so I used, uh, I made a, a post and rung chair with square posts, not turned posts, but uh, shaved or planed posts square. And it was really interesting because I, I took this twisted wood and planed it all s- straight and square, mm-hmm. right? So it's kind of working against what it wants to do. Right. And then after the whole thing was assembled, it, was, it definitely had a moisture content that was higher than the uh, ambient environment. So... Um, as it shrunk and it moved a little bit over the next few weeks, all of a sudden the back post was a little crooked in the <laughs> middle. It kind of warped. Yeah. And it was so interesting because I've seen that so many times. Yeah. When you look at some of those um, old chairs, the post is all like crooked in the middle mm-hmm. like it, or it's bent. And you think, what the heck happened there? Why would they choose that piece of wood? Right. And it dawned on me, of course, that it wasn't, that doesn't mean that it was like that when it first started, but that they probably started with twisted grain Mm -hmm. and they put the thing together and it looked nice and straight. And then all of a sudden, once it dried, it just went bonkers, just twisted. 
I'm gonna you know, actually I quite like it. It's it's quite yeah. it's whimsical. It's and got those are always the chairs that drew my eye. Yeah, like, that's the ones funky. with personality <laughs> rather than you know we have we have a few old chairs kicking around here. Some are uh, almost geometrical in their seeming perfection. Like if you would if you would envision the the axes of the legs and the posts, they would all be parallel and quite nice and everything. Mm -hmm. And then we have some that are a little more free form and whether that was in the the making process or in the um you know the the drying process i don't know yeah well that one the rocking <clears throat> chair we have this one rocking yeah. chair that it's remarkable whoa yeah. it's it looks like i don't even know how to describe it it is we'll have the, to share it sometime the craziest rocking chair i have ever seen mm -hmm. and it the way it's shaved and it's just it's wild nothing is even remotely flat or square or yeah. It might have um, been made, somebody with a pocket knife might have made that. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a little crazy. It's awesome, um, though. So, but yeah, it, it, so I think that's just such a strong contrast to see. Um, I mean, basically, when you look at a factory-made chair, let's say you have someone who's new to the factory turning parts. Um, maybe, let's say it's someone who's even uh, turning everything with a, a chisel still. Typically, there's going to be some variation in that, but it's all going to be equally round, right? Mm -hmm. Or when the um, ornamentation, all the, the, the beads and stuff are, are turned, they're kind of mechanized the way that they're produced, then everyone's look identical. Right. But as soon as you enter into uh, something that's that the tool's got it by hand, anything's possible. Mm. Anything can happen, good or bad or otherwise. And I think that's what's um, so interesting about this uh, this way of chair making that's kind of being celebrated in this issue, um, whether it's Elia and focusing on um, efficiency or uh, Mike Epworth talking about this draw knife kind of chair, or even uh, Richard Pointer and him celebrating uh, you know being able to tweak the design and do these mule ears or whatever. Um, and everyone is able to then, work outside of being boxed into, this is the prepackaged way, this is the right way, the proper scientific way right. that we've analyzed is the best way to make a chair. Yeah. So that's what's so exciting to me about it is the, the variety and the difference. Yeah, yeah, I have um, one chair in my house that um, actually my mom found out at the end of someone's driveway with their garbage um, a few years ago over in Bar Harbor. So, you know, people in Bar That's Harbor- That's the beginning they, of a really good story. They throw out some nice stuff over there in Bar Harbor. It's good to cruise around when it's big <laughs> trash pickup week. Uh, so this chair ends up being this like 1720s or something, like this uh, French ribbon back armchair. Hmm. And it's so interesting because um, it's a combination of, you have big draw knife facets on parts of it, and then you have these really nice turned elements and it's just the funkiest chair, and it's got the the cattail rush seat, uh, this giant wide seat, like you could Super fit like seat. two people almost on it, two small people, I'd say. Yeah. Um, but it's just the funkiest chair, and I think oh, that is so interesting. Just how much um, like freedom went into that? I would say just in in the exercise of these different. Um, these different things. It's not a turn chair necessarily. It's not just a draw knife chair, but there's there's just so much going on there that uh, it just strikes me as it, it's just a fun chair to look at. And um, I think that that kind of encompasses these philosophies that are wrapped up in issue 11, just 
there's so much variety and uh it's just fun it's fun to look at yeah. it's fun to to Absolutely. explore these these angles and uh and we can all just agree that making stuff with our hands is awesome yeah i think it's it's something that is worth celebrating it's worth exploring worth highlighting and worth reading about reading from other people and uh so i'm grateful for issue 11 and elia and, and mike and all the guys that who've uh, written about uh these these chair makers um and these makers themselves and what they were doing and i'm so grateful to be able that these artifacts still live i mean yeah. if you think about it the past is gone mm. right history is not the same thing as the past right we have history now but right. the past no longer exists mm -hmm. it has already gone by but what's so cool about material culture uh the study of material objects physical objects is that it's the only thing from the past that still exists. Yeah. So we can't go to the past, but in these artifacts, we have a piece of the past. Yeah. And that's just so cool. And we so can sit on the past. Can <laughs> take, take a seat on the past. Take a seat <laughs> on the past. Yeah. Um, but that is something that uh, I just, that's what I think why we're so drawn to it is it's a window into another world. Mm. It's a window into a different way of thinking and uh, interacting with a uh, neighbor interacting with tool and material in the world so yeah yeah it's a so, good issue awesome stuff everybody thank you for listening to the morris and Tenon podcast if you haven't already you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and uh as always if you have any comments or questions leave them below and we'll get back to you thank you for listening mm -hmm.